Pastor Jason, Jody, thank you so much for having me. I've loved uh, getting to know your pastor and his wife and, and Kyle and Leah. And I did ride in the church van yesterday. It wasn't bad at all. I loved it. They let me sit in the front seat. But what I didn't realize is that Leah was Kyle's wife because we just met. And she's back there bouncing around with the students. I just assumed she was a student. And then I find out I made the pastor's wife sit in the back. So he tricked me. I would never let that happen. Uh, honored, honored, honored to be here. Uh, I serve in the national office of the Assemblies of God, but I'm just a youth pastor who has kept coming back for more. Uh, I have youth pastor for uh, 16 years and a volunteer youth leader. Before that, it was one day when my youth pastor looked at me and said, Josh, are you called to be a pastor? And I was 24 years old. I'd already graduated from college. I was debt-free, and I had no interest in doing this. I had other plans for my life. But the Holy Spirit wouldn't let me, wouldn't let me say no. And in that moment, I was trying to say, Pastor Scotty, you know, I'm going to do ministry, but I'm going to do it this way. But the only thing that would come out of my mouth was yes. The only thing that would come out of my mouth was obedience. I was saved I had been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I claimed to be walking a spirit-filled ordered of a righteous, or steps of a righteous man ordered of God life. And when it came down to it, I had to be obedient to move forward into God's will for my life. So I'm sticking with the series this week and moving forward. And so I'm excited to, to move forward with you. Uh, the journey of obedience doesn't stop with, you're a pastor now, check, right? You found God's will for your life and your career, check. You tithed, check. You gave in a special offering, check. It does not stop. It is a daily walk in obedience. And the good news is, it's part of the adventure that is the Christian life. Jesus didn't say he came so that we could simply be obedient and walk in obedience. He said that we might have Life to the full, NIV translation, abundant life. The message translation, more and better life. So I believe that that's God's will for me, that's God's will for you. I'm already preaching, I wanted to get to know you a little bit and have a little back and forth and sit down. I'm not going to sit down, but uh, uh, it is an honor to be here. I wish my family could be here. Uh, my wife, Jennifer, is. she just texted me. She's getting kids to service this morning, so I thanked her on your behalf for allowing me to be here. We actually have four children. So those of you, uh, all, let's see, we've got two boys that are 14 and 12, Isaac and Simon, two girls that are six and eight. Those of you with four kids know what getting ready for church in the morning on Sunday can be like. So say a little prayer for Jennifer this morning. Uh, I like the way Jim Gaffigan puts it. He's a comedian. He says, if you want to know what having four kids is like, Imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. It's pretty accurate. <laughs> pretty accurate. But children are a blessing most of the time. No, children are a blessing. It's a blessing. That's all I'll say about that. I do bring you greetings from the national office. Uh, our superintendent, Doug Clay, uh, was elected last summer at our general council, and uh, he invited us to join the team in February. So until February, I was in Michigan. And so I know we had, the, we had the Penn State game on last night. Did we come out? Did Penn State come out? Okay. 
Well, then that was a sad day for Penn State. You know what, though? Anytime Ohio State wins, it's a sad day for Michigan, too. So uh, we, were, we were pulling for a victory for you last night as well. Uh, was, the, was the district youth director in Michigan for two and a half years. And prior to that, I was a youth pastor until the age of 40. Like, that was just my life. That's just what I did. My instinct walking in a room like this, I'm such a youth pastor, is to start setting up chairs and picking up trash. Like, that's just how the Lord wired me, and I'm more comfortable around teenagers than I am around people my own age is really the fact of the matter. And so you're getting a youth message today. You're getting to hear the heart of a youth pastor, but I really believe that you're going to hear the heart of the Father because I believe the message that the Lord has laid on my heart is for you. I believe that if you'll allow the the Holy Spirit to challenge your heart, if you'll make that commitment to walk in obedience, God will speak something special to you today. So let's walk through this together and, uh, and see what we might discover. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we just, we know that your Holy Spirit has authority. And so, God, we, we not only recognize that authority, we submit to that authority. And, and Holy Spirit, you are welcome. You are welcome here. Uh, we, we know that we don't have to give you permission to be here. You're here either way. But, Lord, we do give you permission to invade our hearts. Lord, we choose obedience. Thank you, Lord. Be with us today. Let the words of my mouth the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So as we, amen, as we <laughs> move forward today, church, uh, I just want to give you the challenge that you are called to something greater. You're called to something greater. Uh, I want to share my story just a little bit. I mentioned earlier that I accepted the call to ministry when I was about 24. I actually was called to ministry at the age of 14. So there was about a 10-year gap where there was a little bit of a renegotiation with God. It was at summer camp, um, Assemblies of God District Camp in southern Missouri, about, about five feet away from the altar. My face was buried pretty much in the carpet. Tears, been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And just within me, there was just this intense desire to say yes to God, no matter what the question was. And I just kept praying that, God, whatever you want me to do, the answer is Yes. I'd, I'd heard the stories from missionaries in Africa. They visited our church when I was a little boy. I don't know if they still do this. I haven't seen this in a while, but they used to bring all the, the, the trinkets and souvenirs from Africa and uh, the spears and the, the, the arrows with the poison darts and just the, the, the exotic stuff from around the world. Then they'd tell stories. Some of the stories were exciting. Many of them were of hardship. I thought, well, Lord, I'll, I'll go to Africa. I'll live in a mud hut. I'll eat grubs. I'll do whatever you want me to do, God. At the age of 14, I said yes. And in my heart, the Lord began to give me a vision of being a youth pastor. I, I pictured walking through, literally the image I had in my head was pushing through a crowd of teenagers to get up on stage. And the teenagers were smoking and swearing and they smelled terrible. And that was the group that I felt, God, I'm going to win them for you at the age of 14. Somewhere along the journey, it got renegotiated. When I was 18 years old, and this is just a little bit of my personal testimony, when I was 18 years old, the summer after high school graduation, I begged and pleaded and, and just hit the bricks, and I got a job at our local Christian radio station. And I started doing a, a radio program for teenagers. Um, this was in the south, this was in southern Missouri, in the buckle of the Bible Belt. And I ended up doing that for eight years, and the show got very popular um, at one point, I was actually doing a TV show, a local TV show as well, and I thought, well, this is it, God. I'm going to be on TV. 
I'm going to be on the radio. We're going to go into broadcasting. And I actually pursued the media degree at Evangelical University. And you see how that kind of sounds like obedience, but it wasn't quite what, I, what God had given me the vision for. I thought, well, Lord, there's tens of thousands of listeners on this radio program. It was a show for teenagers. So I thought, well, I'm a radio youth pastor. I'm speaking to a larger radio audience than I could ever speak to in a local church. So, Lord, this is my youth ministry. That was my definition, not God's. I had gone back to something else rather than moving forward to the thing that God had for me. I became a youth leader at our church because I thought, well, maybe that'll pass. There was a gnawing, you know? You know the gnawing? You know that, that feeling that, that God wants something more for you, from you? Like, well, God, I've already given this to you. Like, I'm living for you. 10% of every paycheck goes in the offering. And then when there's a missionary, I give a little more to missions, God. We went through a building fund. I helped pay for that new building, God. I'm being obedient. But then you know he's asking for something a little more, a little different. And it's not just a little more. It's usually everything. Because that's the best way. So for me, and I already told this, but for me it came down to a moment where the youth pastor just looked at me and said, Josh, are, are you supposed to be doing this full time? Well, no, my, my, I do the radio show. Remember, Pastor Scotty, you've, you've, you've listened. You've, you've seen me on stage at the local events. You, you've seen the articles in the newspaper about me and my show. You, you've even seen the TV show. Oh, you haven't seen the TV show? Nobody watched the TV show. It didn't last very long. But the only thing that could come out of my mouth was yes. Yes. So what do I do now? I ended up interning for a couple of years at my home church, and then the Lord launched us out into full-time youth ministry, and that was 17 years ago, and it's been a wonderful adventure, a wonderful adventure, and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It hasn't come in the form, you correct what I was going to say, not everything that has come our way has looked like blessing. We went through the recession in Flint, Michigan. That didn't look or feel like a blessing at the time. Looking back, those trials have been turned to gold, and it was a blessing. I didn't see it at the time, but it was a blessing. And so I would say to you today, say yes to God no matter what. Move forward in your obedience no matter what. I do have a text. I wanted to share my personal story again. You don't know me, and I don't know you, but we're getting to know each other a little bit. Wish we could all sit down and have a meal together like we did last night and, uh, and just share our hearts because there is a wonderful bond that we share in the body of Christ. And I just love it. I just love it. We're going to be looking at John chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. Something interesting happens. This is after the resurrection. Jesus has taken these young men, some of most theologians agree that most of the disciples were teenagers. So almost, almost in a youth pastor type capacity, he takes these young men on the adventure of a lifetime. They were there for the feeding of the 5,000. They saw Jesus walk on water. They saw him heal blind Bartimaeus and bring sight to blind eyes. They saw Lazarus walk out of the tomb. They smelled Lazarus walk out of the tomb. They had gone on an adventure that none of them as young fishermen on the Sea of Galilee could have possibly anticipated. Now, their savior, their rabbi, he's crucified. It's terrifying. They're uncertain. They're not sure what's happening. But the words of Jesus are coming back to them, and they're realizing it all adds up. 
He's resurrected. He reveals himself to them at least three times. Allows Thomas and the others to touch the wounds. Their faith is is built up as they see the risen king. Can you imagine the powerhouse that you would be for Jesus if you had those kinds of experiences? Except something, something derails at some point in John chapter 21. And to understand it, we have to look back just a little bit. We have to look back. Luke chapter 5, this is when Jesus first calls the disciples. Um, not all the Gospels record it this way, but one of the versions tells that when Jesus called the disciples, they're fishing, they're not catching anything. He says, guys, throw your net on the other side of the boat. They pull in the catch, except the nets are breaking because the catch is so big. Jesus has done a miracle, and it is, he's basically created a week's worth of wages out of about a five minutes worth of labor. So it really is a miracle. They're excited. And then he says something to him. He says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. They're going, huh? Wow. Something exciting happens. Peter, John, James, and Andrew, they're they're going, we're going to follow you. We're going to do it. And then in Luke chapter 5, verse 11, this is how Luke puts these words. He says, so they pulled their boats up on the shore. They left everything and followed him. Now, we're going to jump forward to John chapter 21, but it's important that we understand what happened in Luke chapter 5. This is before the miracles. This is before Jesus was the talk of the town. This is before the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. This is before the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, this is before the crowds at all. They left everything to follow him. They put their boats on the shore and they left everything and follow him. So fast forward to John chapter 21. Again, this is after the resurrection. This is after they've seen the miracles. This is after they've lived the adventure of a lifetime. Their faith should be huge. They should be ready to do the things that Jesus has called them to do. What did he call them to do after he was resurrected? He said, go to Jerusalem and wait for the counselor, wait for the Holy Spirit, wait for the advocate, wait for the comforter. Go to Jerusalem. Go do it. Go pray. Go wait. I got big plans for you, Peter. You don't even know what's coming in the book of Acts. Go back and pray. So what's he doing in John chapter 21? It's the last chapter in in the Gospel of John. What's he doing in John chapter 21? Let's find out. It's not waiting in Jerusalem. Why isn't he doing that? Let's read. John chapter 21, starting in verse 3. Um, Again, just for context, there are seven disciples named in this, this this little story. Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. They're on the Sea of Galilee. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out to the boat. The boat? Did they borrow a boat? Was this a friend's boat? Had they won a boat in the Bass Pro drawing? Did they rent a boat? No! They went back to the boat. Oh, the boat? Yeah, you know the boat from Luke chapter 5 that they left on the shore and they left everything to follow Jesus? They went back to the boat. Oh, that boat? They went back and punched the clock at the shift, or at the, at the, at the plant. He, he, well, yeah, they were going back to work. Jesus is gone. we got to hit the bricks, guys. we got to go earn a living. Well, but we're supposed to be in Jerusalem praying and waiting. Well, I, we got mouths to feed. Let's go back to the boat. Oh, the boat that we left behind. Yeah. And seven of them said it's time to get back to work. Jesus is gone. Now, I don't want to read too much into this that's not in Scripture But I'm just saying, I can relate to going back to the boat. So let's read on. 
says they went back to the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellas, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll get some. This sounds familiar. This sounds familiar. So they did, and they couldn't haul the net in because there were so many fish in it. Again, Jesus does this miracle, creates a week's worth of wages out of a five-minute net cast. Then the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, he remembers this miracle. I know this one. He says, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, he jumped in the water, and he headed to the shore. Jesus meets him with disappointment. No. Jesus meets him with a stern look. Why aren't you praying in Jerusalem? No. Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, why weren't you praying? I said go pray in Jerusalem and wait for the advocate, the comforter, the the, the power. No. How does Jesus meet us when we're off course? Same way he meets the disciples. Now come and have some breakfast. With love. With hospitality. With comfort. He doesn't say, Peter, go get a switch. Peter, go get my belt. He's meeting them with grace. Because that's what Jesus does. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. So Jesus meets them with breakfast. He says, none of the disciples, and, and it said that none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them some bread and fish. This was the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Peter, Jesus asks Peter this question. Now, you know, those of you that are students of the New Testament, you know this. You know that Peter's name growing up was Simon. Not a bad name. It's fine. Uh, but when Jesus meets him, he changes his name. He calls him Peter. Peter means rock. Jesus later said that upon this rock, I will build my church. In, the, in our fellowship and in most Protestant churches, we agree that uh, he was referring to the church, that the church would be the rock on which Jesus would build his community. Um, the Catholics, of course, have the interpretation that he was referring to Peter, and the Catholics refer to Peter as the, the first pope. So different translations of that, but needless to say, Jesus had big plans for Peter, and he, so much so that he, it required a name change. But now he's not calling him Peter, he's calling him Simon. And in verse 15, Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The Bible says that Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. Why is he hurt? He's calling him Simon, son of John. He's, he's not calling me by the name he gave me. He gave me a name. Jesus gave me a new name, and now he's calling me by my old name. Why is he calling me Simon, son of John? Because you're not acting like Peter. You're acting like Simon, son of John. Simon, son of John, was a fisherman, and that's great. He was a hard worker. He was faithful. He worked hard. I'm told that in the Holy Land, to this day, at dawn, in the morning, if you go out by the Sea of Galilee, you can see the fishermen bringing in the fish because the fish that they're going to catch are primarily caught at night. They're best caught at night. I've, I've tried to do some research to figure out what kind of fish 
this is? And they actually, now they call it St. Peter's Fish in the Holy Land. Um, I'm guessing that's not what it was called in Peter's day. Uh, how vain would he have to be to say, well, I'm going to call that St. Peter's Fish. Oh, after yourself, yes. Uh, so some kind of tilapia is, is the best that I can gather. But he's a hard worker. This is a good thing. He's faithful. This is a good thing. But it was not what he was called to. He was being Simon, son of John, when he had been called to be Peter, the rock upon which Jesus would establish and build his church. Jesus had bigger plans. Peter, if you only knew what God had for you. Church, if you only knew what God had for you. I've heard it said many times that if we really knew what God had for us, we wouldn't be able to handle it, and that's why he only reveals little pieces at a time. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that for Peter, there was an, an even more amazing adventure coming. Jesus is going, Peter, uh, I know you don't have the book of Acts yet, but I already know it. <laughs> My Holy Spirit's going to inspire the writer and whole New Testament thing we got planned, it's going to be great, and you are a really big part of it. So Simon, son of John, can you just tell me, do you love me at all? And I've heard great messages uh, preached on the different words of love that Jesus was using in this exchange. I'll leave that for another lesson, but put emphasis on the fact that Jesus asked three times, Simon, son of John, will you stop being Simon, son of John, and will you be Peter? Those of you that are called to do something, and I really believe it's all of us, what has God called you to do? He hasn't given us all new names, but he's given us new identities, hasn't he? You know, for me, it was more of a title. You know, I'm Pastor Josh. I have been for a while now. Sometimes I get the question, do I, like from personal friends, be like, do, you, do I need to call you Pastor Josh? It's like, well, I don't know. Do you want me to be pastor or not? You know, because I need, I need to be called both. You know, I need the humility of people that will just call me, call me out. But then there's other times when you might need a pastor. So if you need a pastor, I'll be your pastor. How about that? Feed my sheep, Jesus says to him. Peter was called to something greater. Peter was called to move forward. Matthew 28, 19, it's the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in a baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them all the things that I've taught you. The Great Commission, these are things that Peter already knew. He knew what his orders were. He knew he was supposed to be in Jerusalem praying. Luke chapter 24, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. There's a, there's a struggle here because I shared my testimony, and my testimony meant giving my career to full-time ministry. And so it would be easy for the takeaway to be like, well, it's easy for you. You changed your career, but you don't understand the financial pressures I'm under. You don't understand my background. You don't understand my family. You don't know anything about me. So the message is not, hey, you should go into ministry. That's not what everybody's called to. Here's what I would say to you. Give your career to God. Give your life to ministry. I'm of the opinion that everyone's called to ministry. I'm of the opinion that whatever your career is need to be, needs to be dedicated to God. Wherever it is that you work, wherever it is that you serve, it might be a joy to work there. It might not. Some people like their jobs. Others don't. But I can tell you this, whether you like it or not, God has put something in you, a light, 
to shine in a dark place. And the darker the place, the more necessary the light is. So wherever it is that you are serving, wherever it is that you are working, give your career to God. Allow God to invade that career. Allow him to invade that shift. Allow him to invade that workplace. Because you need to give your life to ministry. And you can never go back. As you're moving forward with God, we can never go back to habits that are old, people that influence us in ways that are not good, the negative peer pressure that Pastor referred to earlier. We can't go back to old attitudes. We need to go back to serve, to give, to say yes to Jesus no matter what. We need to go back to share what God has done. So let me give you four themes today that we can take from this little this little story, this little exchange between Jesus and the disciples, primarily Peter. The four themes are this. I'll give them to you all four now, and then we'll kind of unpack them as we go, and I'll make some comments as we work our way through. Four themes are this. Responsibility, potential, identity, and dream. These are all noble words. Responsibility, potential, identity, and dream. Let's talk about responsibility. Peter was asked to do something specific. He was asked to feed my sheep. Three times in a row, Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. There's a comfort in knowing that Jesus is willing to say that three times. There's a comfort. Because I don't want to miss what Jesus is saying to me. Say, man, Peter must have been embarrassed that he had to say it three times. Well, maybe, but truly, if it takes me three times to hear what Jesus is saying, I want to hear it. I want him to repeat it as many times as necessary so that my heart can be obedient. And when my heart is disobedient, I want him to keep saying it out of love to steer me back. And when I'm disobedient, I want him to meet me there with breakfast and then ask me some difficult questions to get me back on track. Jesus cared enough for Peter. He cares enough for you to keep asking, to keep asking you to say yes to what he has called you to. We're all called to something different. We're all called to something specific. There is not a season of your life or mine that does not require obedience to Jesus. You don't, you're not working towards retirement from Jesus. We will always have to walk in obedience to Jesus, not because we have to, because therein lies the secret to life more abundant, to, li- to life to the full. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 really challenges my heart to say yes to Jesus because I care about the lost. I shared with the teenagers yesterday at Allison Park that we're saying yes to be campus missionaries. The thing about reaching the lost, the thing about leading someone to Jesus, that is one of the most confirming experiences I've ever had that what we believe is real. Allow me to explain. My, there was a friend in high school, my youth group, we were campus missionaries. We didn't use that term back then, but that's what we were. We wanted to reach our school for Jesus. We'd been challenged at camp. We'd been challenged on Wednesday night at youth group. Reach your school for Jesus. Reach your school for Jesus. So there was a group of us who said, yes, we're going we're gonna to do that. I don't remember feeling particularly brave about that. I don't remember feeling particularly noble about it. In fact, I kind of felt like I needed to do it if I really wanted to go to heaven. 
I mean, that's bad theology, but that's just in my 14, 15-year-old mind. That was just kind of what I thought I needed to do. So I wanted to be a good Christian. But I'm going to tell you what was so confirming about God's love for me. So directing away from that sort of attitude and heart of legalism and towards a heart that is aligned to the Father. We invited Phil to church, and Phil was the, he was the most popular guy in school. We just thought, well, we need to reach the lost. Let's go after Phil. Let's pray for Phil. It was easy to pray for Phil. He was good looking. He was one of the nicest guys at, at school. He was the pitcher on the baseball team. And so, and there were a few of them, but Phil I remember specifically. Uh, but we just remember, you know, Phil's, you know, invite Phil to church. Phil's going to come to church. Phil's going to come to church. And then he wouldn't show. Phil's going to come to church this Wednesday, and then he wouldn't show. All right, hey guys, Phil's coming, you know. And there were other names. It wasn't just Phil, but, but I remember the Wednesday night Phil walked in. I was like, oh, cool. We've been praying for him to come. Hey, did you see Phil's here? Hey, Phil's gonna, he's coming to church tonight. I'm like, all right, he's going to get saved. This is exciting. And then some of you remember the 1980s in church. Um, they showed a Christian film that night. And I know there's cool, like, Christian films now. But in the 1980s, they were kind of cheesy. And so I was so disappointed that my youth pastor was showing a movie that night. I'm like, wow, Phil finally came tonight, and you're going to show this dumb movie. So they show this movie. It wasn't very long. It wasn't like a feature-length thing, and I'm pretty sure it was made in the 70s, so it was, it was old at that time. And uh, at the end of the movie, I look down the row, and I see Phil, and he's crying. Just tears in his eyes. And he turns over to the girl next to him. Her name was Annie. Turns over to Annie. says, Annie, why am I crying? She goes, that's the Holy Spirit, Phil. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to you. Phil's actually a pastor today. I remember, uh, I, and then he and I became best friends after that, and I remember sitting by him in church and him opening his Bible. All these passages are highlighted. He's asking questions. See, I'd grown up in church. My dad was in ministry, so I was, I was what you might call a church brat. Seeing his love for the Word of God made me realize that it, transformation was real. Seeing his lifestyle change, he actually... Stopped, he had to stop hanging out with some people, and it wasn't because anybody told him. He just said, I don't think I can hang out with my old friends anymore because they're drinking and partying and stuff, and I don't think God wants me to do that. And we're like, yeah, who, who told you that? I don't know. I just feel it. That's the Holy Spirit. So seeing it work in someone else's life is very confirming. So if you have your doubts, ask God to show you transformation in someone else's life because that can be the proof that is the tipping point for you, putting your faith in Jesus. It was for me. We, did, we continued to pray for our school. My wife got saved in college. She went to our, our, our high school as well. She got saved in college at, at our church that we attend now, as a matter of fact. Um, just a few, I told the teenagers this yesterday as well, just a few months ago, a friend from high school got saved that I had prayed for. Uh, he's a country music singer. He tours, his band opens up for Willie Nelson, if, if Willie continues to tour. I don't know how much longer he's going to be with us. But, but he just got saved a, about a Let's see, it's been probably three months now in our church in Missouri. It's just crazy what God is doing that is confirming his power and his ability and his sovereignty. We have a responsibility, and it's not just because people need to get saved. It's because our faith needs to be built. But people getting saved is huge. In fact, Romans chapter 10, verse 13 puts it this way. Paul writes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you, God. 
Verse 14, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them, give your career to God, give your life to ministry, because people need to hear the truth about Jesus. Are all of them going to accept it? No. Does it feel like culturally it's getting more and more difficult to talk about Jesus? Yes. Does it mean that we're not winning? No, the gospel is winning, folks. You might see the the ebb and flow of culture, and yes, it's getting more and more immoral. Immorality is getting more acceptable in our public schools. Immorality is getting more acceptable on television and in the news. It terrifies and shocks me. But I'm telling you, the gospel is still winning. I'm going to give you some hard numbers to prove that here in just a moment, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Psalm chapter 96 verse 3 tells us to publish His glorious deeds among the nations. Publish His glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing things that God does. I love that the psalmist used the word publish. I don't know what the original text was in the Hebrew, but, but the word publish, sociologists are telling us that Generation Z, which would be students 18 and younger, the millennials have already... They're already in college and in the workplace. So you can... (laughs) Did someone say unfortunately? (laughs) I'm sorry, millennials. You guys really do have a bad reputation. But you're going to work hard to change it. Um, Generation Z, sociologists are telling us something different about Generation Z. They're saying that Generation Z, which again, 18 and younger, is going to have the work ethic of the greatest generation. The generation that came out of the the Great Depression and fought World War II and rebuilt the economy after World War II, they're going to have that work ethic. But they're also saying they're going to have the cynicism of Generation X. See, I'm part of Generation X, and we kind of had a lousy attitude as young adults. (laughs) We got depressed real easy. We listened to grunge music and shopped in thrift stores and wore used combat boots to school. That was Gen X. We didn't trust anybody. So this new generation coming up, They don't want to be labeled the way the millennials have been labeled. Again, millennials, fair or not, you've kind of been given a bad rap. And Gen Z is looking at that going, we don't want that, so we're going to work hard. I've seen it in my own own kids. My 14-year-old is one of the hardest workers I know. He's still a turkey sometimes, but he's a hard worker. He's very intense. So we've got this generation coming up. And you know what sociologists are saying one of their greatest desires is? Is to publish. Publish, like write a book? No. That's what they're calling it when they post those little videos on their social media. That's what they're calling it when they take a selfie and share it with thousands of their friends around the internet. That's what they're calling it when they're saying that the number one Christmas present that eight-year-olds want this year is their own YouTube channel because their desire to publish is so great, they want to share their life and their world and their experiences with people all over the internet. Good, bad, or indifferent, God said in Psalm chapter 96, the psalmist wrote, publish his glorious deeds among the nations. The next generation of students is publishing things like never before. They're fulfilling Scripture if we lead them and guide them and steer them correctly. Otherwise, they're just going to publish how good-looking they are and how sweet they look in this outfit or that outfit or going to take pictures of the latest fashion. No, let's publish the glorious things that God has done. The challenge is there for you as well, church. Let's publish the things that God is doing. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. 
That is our responsibility, just like it was Peter's, it is yours, it is mine. Let's talk about potential. In verse 6, this is the potential that the disciples had. They went back to work and were accomplishing nothing, but the potential was the miraculous. Jesus said, throw out your net on the right side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish. Again, I don't know the, I don't know the, the metrics exactly, but I'm guessing a full load of fish that breaks the nets, that's got to be pretty close to a week's worth of wages for them. And they accomplished it just like that because God is able to do the miraculous in the moment with our efforts. He's able to do the miraculous in the moment with our finances. He's able to do the miraculous in the moment in our relationships. That's our potential. What does God say success is should be our question. What does God want you to do and what does he say success is? Not what do you say success is, what do I say success is, what does God say success is? Popular culture for the last probably 15, 20 years and maybe before that, this has just been my observation, popular culture has over-encouraged and under-empowered teenagers. In popular culture, it's common for kids to celebrate hitting the lowest potential. Everybody gets a trophy. You show up, you get a trophy. That's popular culture. Students in the Assemblies of God have taken it a step further. In 2017, Assemblies of God teenagers gave $9.4 million to speed the light. $9.4 million. The teenagers in the Assemblies of God are not setting the bar at the lowest place possible. We're believing for $11 million this year. Well, that's great. You're a really good fundraiser, minister. Good for you. No, they're saying that every dollar given, listen to this statistic, this is amazing. This comes from Assemblies of God World Missions. Every dollar that's given to speed the light is one more person, statistically, one more person that gets to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? He said, the end will not come until all have heard. Logistically, we have the technology now, we have the capacity, we've had the message for 2,000 years for the entire globe to hear the gospel. There is a plan in place to share the gospel with unreached people groups all over the planet. We're doing it through compassion ministries, we're doing it through traditional church planning and Bible school training, we're doing it through all avenues that, we, that the Lord has given us to share the gospel with everyone. You want to know why the Lord's waiting? You want to know when the end will come? Why is he waiting? Because more people need to get saved. Because more people need to hear the gospel. It's our responsibility. It is our to share. It is our potential that we can share it with everyone. Matthew 24, 14. The good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. Let me talk to you about identity. In the exchange with Jesus and Peter, there's a bit of an identity crisis. He's calling him Simon, son of John. He'd already taken the name Peter. His real identity was Peter, but he was behaving like Simon, son of John. Because he wasn't doing what God had called him to do. So the question for you is, what has God called you to do? What's God called you to do? The perception in our nation is that we have decided, and this is culturally, this is not within the church, but we've decided that religion is personal to each his own that tolerance is the order of the day. We encourage exploration of worldviews. We've identified religion in our popular culture as a liability. There's a new study out from the Barna Group, if you're familiar with them. They're kind of the, the most respected um, statistics, really, in the Christian evangelical world. When they surveyed non-Christians, the question was, if you see someone reading their Bible in public, what is your perception of them? 
25% of non-Christians surveyed said that if they saw someone reading a Bible in public, their assumption was that they're a violent person. That is not consistent with what our culture would have said 50 years ago. That's only 25%, but it shouldn't be 25% at all. Now again, these are non-Christians. What's their perception? They're a violent person. Let me, read, let me read it specifically. I kind of trailed off there. It says, they would assume that they were an obtuse, difficult personality given to violence. That's specifically what the, the research said. Let me give you some more statistics. There was a study. Now, now, again, this is to share with you our identity. Our identity. We know our responsibility. We know our, we know our potential. Let me tell you what our real identity is. It might not feel like the church is winning. I said this earlier, but we are winning. Thanks for coming, guys. Statistically, now this is from a study called Christianity in its Global Context. It was done by the the Gordon Cornwall Theological Seminary. Globally, the church is growing by 80,000 people per day. Let me say that one more time. 80,000 people are coming to church every day. Now this is globally. This is globally. It doesn't always feel like we're winning in America. That's why I'm such an advocate of world missions, because people in the United States have many, 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 many opportunities to hear the gospel. I mean, in this community alone, they have you. You know the good news. You can take it to them. Globally, there are still groups that have not heard the gospel. That's why my heart goes out to foreign missions. I want to be a part of it. I want to put my dollars to it. I've told the Lord I will go as a missionary. I'm still waiting for him to tell me to go. Because 80,000 people are joining the church every day globally. There are 519 new churches formed every day around the world. In Africa, we've been sending missionaries to Africa for a long time. In 1970, there were 143 million Christians in Africa, which made up about 38% of the population of that continent. They're saying by the year 2020, if the numbers, if the trends continue, that number will grow to 630 million people, which makes up about half of the continent of Africa. The gospel is winning in Africa. In Asia, Christianity is growing more than twice as fast as the general population. Twice as fast! And most of that is through conversions, not simply Christians having more children. Asia has seen the number of Christians double From 1970 to 2010, the number of Christians doubled across the continent of Asia. Let me talk about the Islamic world. Missionaries to the Islamic world say that Muslims have converted to Christianity, that that more Muslims have converted since September 11, 2001, than the entire 14th century history of Islam. In 14 centuries, more Muslims have come to Christ in the last, let's see, 17 years. But in 14 centuries, the gospel is winning, folks. That is our identity. There's a ministry of the Assemblies of God called the Upper Room. It is a secret ministry in the Islamic world. It is in very sensitive countries where you will be punished for diverting from your Muslim faith. In the Upper Room, they're saying, conservatively speaking, since that ministry began just a couple of years ago, there are more than 20,000 new spirit-filled believers across the Middle East. The gospel is winning. That is our identity. 
102 years ago, there were 300 people in the assemblies of God. Today, there are 60, actually, this number's not accurate. I just saw the new statistic. There are 69 million people worldwide in the assemblies of God. 95% of them are outside of the United States. There are 365,000 churches in the assemblies of God worldwide. Guess what? That's more than McDonald's. The gospel is winning. Someone gets saved every 25 seconds. 3,700 people get saved every day in Assemblies of God churches. We're winning. The gospel is winning. That, my friends, is our identity. Is that we are on the winning team. I see that Steelers jersey. I hope you're on the winning team tonight. If you're a Christian, you're on the winning team. That is our identity and our potential is to do everything that God has said we can do. The reality is we need to say yes and we need to dream. We need to dream big. The dream for Peter was amazing. He didn't even know it all. We know it. We have the advantage of reading this story and knowing what the dream is for Peter. He's, he and the apostles go on to start a worldwide revolution that ends, not ends, but that has resulted in you being here today because Peter said yes. It's pretty phenomenal. So some questions to ask you underneath the category of dream. And this is pretty simple. What should be? Everybody needs to hear the gospel. What could be? We can probably tell the whole world the gospel. Well, then what must be? What should be? What could be? What must be? Responsibility. Will you say yes no matter what? Potential. What does God say success is? Identity. What does God say you are capable of? And dream. What should be, what could be, and what must be. Would you stand with me as we close? I'm so thankful that I'm just able to be with you today to share a little bit about what the Lord's done in my life, to allow me to apply it to just a little section of scripture where I see the, a similar dynamic taking place. And I would love for you to join me in this journey saying yes to Jesus no matter what. I would love for this to be a fellowship that makes a big impact for the kingdom because you're fulfilling your potential. You're embracing your responsibility, recognizing your identity, and you're dreaming big. And I realize today there might be people here that you're just not in yet. Maybe you were in, but you're not in anymore. You gave your life to Jesus and somehow it fizzled. It was more than just a compromise. It was a complete crash and burn. Jesus is waiting. Just like he was waiting for Peter with breakfast, he's waiting for you. There's no literal continental breakfast waiting for you, but there's a spiritual one.